You're listening to the Moments of Clarity podcast by Six Seconds Europe. So those are my three moments, February 79, January 2001, and I suppose April 09. And they were either the kind of bookend or the door opening of my sort of careers from farming to politics to business and to media. Hello, my name is Fergal O'Keefe and you're very welcome to the Six Seconds podcast. For more details on Six Seconds, go to our website, sixseconds.org slash eu. We couldn't have picked a more inspirational person for our last episode of season two. The former politician and serial entrepreneur Ivan Yates entered the Irish Parliament at just 21 in 1981. He rose through the ranks of the Fine Gael Party to become Minister for Agriculture in the 90s. By the turn of the century, Ivan was being tipped as a future party leader and Taoiseach or Prime Minister of Ireland. Then, in 2001, he turned his back on politics to concentrate on his business career. Ivan grew his Celtic bookmaker's business to over 65 shops in Ireland and Wales. But then recession hit in 2008 and he found his businesses floundering, which resulted in the business going into receivership. This led Ivan to having to go to Wales and declare bankruptcy in 2011. Ivan then started a new career in radio broadcasting in News Talk. He then grew this national show into one of the most popular radio shows in Ireland. But then the ever restless man Ivan left the show in 2020 and he started a new business, Media Masterclass, where he advises people and presents courses on how to deal with the media. You can now find all the episodes of season one and two where we have interviewed people from all walks of life and they have all one thing in common. They all have inspirational stories. So now let's hear Ivan's inspirational story. Hello, Ivan. You're very welcome to the podcast. Great to see you. This is actually our final episode of season two. So I'm delighted to have you for it. As you know, I, I mentioned to you like the idea of the podcast, it's, it's called Three Moments of Clarity. So it's three moments in your life that led to change. And yeah. I know that you could have had 50 of them. So the, f- well, the first one um, that you picked was when you got into politics. Uh, well, it, it was it was a little bit before that. It mm-hmm. was February 1979. Uh, the context of this, Virgil, was that uh, I uh, had had uh, been in St. Columba's uh, College, uh, post-primary school, boarding school in Rathfarnham. And uh, in, as a teenager, uh, around 15 years of age, my father developed very serious uh, lung cancer it was terminal and it couldn't be treated anymore and his uh, sort of terminal wish was that I would come home to farm and uh, I, I actually after O-levels left school didn't do the leaving cert and went to Gertine Agriculture College and the farm had been set because he was a wool merchant for maybe 20 plus years and it was very run down it had no uh, water, no electricity, there was no proper sheds on it, there was no tractor, there was no livestock. And uh, I was intensively involved with about 200 yos, and I was, you know, basically 17, 18 years of age. And uh, then in the kind of winter of 78, 79, um, health situation of my father deteriorated, and he sort of 
uh, took to the bed as such, and um, he, he never got out of it. And he eventually died in uh, February, uh, I think it was the 7th of February, 1979. And that was a kind of uh, really seminal moment for me, because I think uh, a number of things uh, flowed from that. First of all, he was a bit of an old school dad, and being both your dad and your employer, uh, made for a difficult uh, situation, sort of almost authoritarian. And um, the, the, the situation was that his death actually uh, made a man of me in terms of that, uh, albeit I was only uh, uh, whatever it was, uh, 18, uh, I, I uh, had to kind of face up to the world that the farm was now my responsibility. My mother, you know, was a widow, was not going to be farming herself, but she would be the principal. Uh, and uh, I had developed uh, an interest in politics. Uh, I had, uh, as a hobby, um, young Fine Gael, And having been in boarding school, I, um, I, 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 I didn't know. I'd been in boarding school since the age of eight. I didn't know people locally in Enniscorthy. And therefore... Uh, 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 a political career wasn't really an option because I had no real kind of understanding or whatever. And uh, as such was my lack of contacts, I looked up Fine Gael in the Yellow Pages uh, and because my father, my family and everything had no political background or interest whatsoever uh, and, and was a completely kind of raw recruit uh, to it. But I suddenly realised after my father died, and this was the kind of uh, moment of clarity, that actually I can live my own life. I can do what I like. Uh, and uh, that I do, he, he disapproved strongly of me going to meetings every night, uh, even though, you know, that was in a lesser capacity uh, and so on, uh, because he, he had known people whose farm had gone to rack and ruin because they'd sort of been too involved in politics and they neglected their farm. And he, 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 he was kind of quite tunnel vision about putting work and all that kind of thing in the business first. So what actually happened was then in June of 79, I got elected. Uh, Gareth Fitzgerald had taken over Fine Gael at the time and he wanted to kind of rejuvenate the party and he issued a kind of edict that in every town council, like Clonmel, like Enniscorthy or whatever, that young Fine Gael would nominate a candidate on the urban council ticket in the June elections. And nobody else wanted to go. And I said, well, look, I have no chance of getting in. But uh, if I if I um, actually uh, get my name out there, I could maybe get in the next time. You know, it'd be a stepping stone. Um, remarkably, I got in by 13 votes and perhaps a sympathy vote for my father, who was well known in Enniscorthy. He was an employer for many years and that kind of thing and had a lot of contacts and so on. Um, but basically... Uh, absolutely uh, fluked it and uh, that led to a situation when in 1980, 81, when the general election was coming up uh, and it was Garrett's first general election, um, Wexford had been made a four-seater into a five-seater. There was an area around Carlo Bonclody that had been brought back in and the county boundary was it. And, and people said, look, uh, Michael Darcy was the sitting TD in, in the north of the county Whoever gets the nomination in an escorty uh, could get, the, sorry, if Fine Gael are to get a second seat, they're in the right place at the right time. And, and 
as it happened, a group of people got around me and said, this young Yates fella can't be blamed for anything. Uh, he, you know, he, he seems bright and he seems very energetic. And I just was in the right place at the right time. And therefore I became the youngest TD in the doll, and the rest is history. So I think if my father had lived, I don't think any of those circumstances were as permissible um, or, you know, no matter how headstrong I, I was, I don't think I would have had his support for that. So um, it, 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 two aspects. One, I've interviewed a lot of people myself, and I find that the most driven people are people, one of whose parents died when they were young. It's amazing. They actually have to grow up. They have to mature. They have to, to get on with life. So in that way, it kind of catapulted me into adulthood. And secondly, it allowed me to develop my passion for politics, which resulted in it. So I would say February 79, even though it was traumatic and it was sad and it was it was truly, uh, uh, you know, I'd never really seen a dead person before. And that whole thing, you know, was very difficult. But uh, out of it was it was a bit of a kind of cathartic moment. And you, you know, your family were went back generations in Enniscourt, didn't you, in the farm? I yes. Mean, uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, if you if you drive down. In uh, uh, Scorthy Key, you'll see um, 1879, I think it is, or 1880. Uh, the, there's kind of warehousing and all there. They had business of coal and uh, uh, bringing up stuff through the River Slaney. He was a wool merchant and, and all of that. And my great-grandfather, uh, John F. Yates, uh, also uh, 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 made all that. And we have here at Black Stoops in our home where I'm speaking to you from, the auctioneer's notice of the purchase of the house in 1870. And at that time, uh, uh, you, the same guy, John F. Yates, bought here. And, and we've been here ever since, uh, six generations now. So, so that, that, was, that was the first sort of pivotal moment. And it was entirely a kind of family moment. But, you know, also you were moved. So to move into politics, I mean, I, I've, I've read some quotes for saying that, you know, they looked down, your family looked down on politics. Was, absolutely. Absolutely. You know. My father didn't approve of it. And uh, it was kind of kind of seen as crooked. And, and also it wasn't a proper job. And, you know, actually making it into a career wasn't really a viable option. You know, the best you could hope was to be a counsellor. And I, you know, starting out, didn't really envisage myself as a TD at all. But just one thing led to another. There was was there three elections, eighty one to eighty two. That's right. That's in, right. There was in there was June eighty one, November eighty one, and June eighty two, and it was enough to break any bank and uh, the wear out the voluntary forces, and uh, there were indecisive results. And eventually, then from eighty two to eighty seven, uh, there was um, the 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 Fine Gael Labour government. I was a backbencher throughout that period. Uh, with uh, Gareth Sturt and Dick Spring. So you were only 21 up to, say, 25, 27, around that time. Yeah. And a lot of the politicians, you know, like Jack Lynch or whatever, you could have said there was nearly a civil war era with a lot of the politicians. It must have been... Well, it um, was really the, the hohi... Jack yeah. stepped down in 79. Mm. It was really the hohi uh, uh, Garish uh, conflict. And it was it was a lot more kind of profound in yeah. terms of differences on Northern Ireland, on the economy, on ethics and lots of things, on the constitutional reform, 
in relation to liberal issues. There was really a, a very significant uh, a battle uh, for the hearts and minds of an emerging Ireland at that stage. And it, it, it was a very interesting time in politics. It was a good place to learn. And mm. when you went into politics, you know, it was part of my, like the skills I learned in politics about play the ball and not the person and be very adversarial at the same time. And, and people skills, you know what I mean, that, that I've learned, uh, you know, it was a really great grounding because, you know, and, and it was real learning by your mistakes and, you know, very novice and, and very inexperienced. So it was learning on the job. Um, and, and, you know, I was, I was, you know, an outrageous whippersnapper when I look back, like I was fit to run the country and be Taoiseach at 21. But like, as I got more into it, I could see greater complexity to it. And so your second moment of clarity then? My second moment of clarity uh, is, at the, is at the opposite end of my political career. And this, this happened. Um, so uh, I had my first child, Andrew was born in January uh, 88 and Kira was born Irish twins a year later in January 89 and uh, that was that was emerging and um, basically um, we had our third child in 1991 uh, and and we were working away uh, along and then our fourth child was born in 1997 and at this stage um, I had um, four kids, we weren't going to have any more. Uh, and I had as a hobby set up my first betting shop in Tremor, uh, made every mistake, was robbed every side of the counter and uh, had had quite a, an engaging experience. But bit by bit, I eliminated the mistakes. It was very much a hobby. And I had six shops, uh, Wicklow, Waterford, uh, uh, Tremor, uh, and 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 gory and places like that, and um, it, it was it was it was it was starting to to, to sort of uh, get six inches off the ground and starting to develop. And uh, my head was turned by the fact that first of all, I'd always said I would retire in my uh, around forty after twenty years. I wasn't going to give my full life to politics, but anyway, I was persuaded. Uh, so we were in government from 1994 to 1997. I was Minister for Agriculture. And I kind of was falling out of love with politics and I was burnt out. And after 20 years of constituency work, sort of uh, 1981 to 1921 of clinics and funerals and all the kind of mundane stuff uh, and, 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 and necessary stuff to hold your seat. And I had been unbeaten in all elections. Um, I went to John Bruton and said, you know, I'm actually thinking of, of, of making a career move and getting out of politics. And his leadership was under some threat. This was in the period where back in opposition, we had had a good election in 97, but we're out of power. And the PDs and, and Fianna Fáil were in power. And basically, uh, I was still on the front bench and still in a very prominent position. And I remember having lunch with John and I said, look, uh, don't worry, I won't be a threat to you for the leadership because I'm, I'm, I'm actually thinking of, of moving out of politics. I've developed this fledgling business and I could see how I could make a livelihood out of it and I could spend more time with the children and one thing and another. And he said, look, he said, will you do me one favour? We're going to give it one last go in the next election, uh, which was to be 2001 
to try and get the Rainbow government re-elected. And the Rainbow government had left office with a decent reputation, but the spring tide had ebbed a bit. Um, and and that, that's how we, we sort of lost the numbers uh, to be in government. And so I had agreed to stand again to be a candidate. And then what happened was there was a heave in December 2000 against John Bruton by Austin DC. It was kind of solo run. And um, it was kind of dismissed that he'd only get kind of six votes against him. And at those days, you know, anyone could put down a motion of no confidence. And to my surprise, out of about 70 votes, about, you know, I was one of the tellers for it, you know, almost 30 people voted against John. And that to me said, right, if there's a real assault on him, the the, the promise I made to John might be needed to be honoured because um, uh, basically uh, uh, I'd be sort of free. Uh, And I did feel I owed John something, having put me in cabinet and so on. And we were close friends. So basically what happened was that Michael Noonan and Jim Mitchell together in a pincer movement went for the jugular of John Bruton in January 2001. And uh, I knew they had the numbers and I wasn't going to, like it, was, it, was, it, was, it was put up or shut up time whether I was going to be a candidate. Even though I'd be defeated, maybe, I would be the kind of standard bearer for the non for the Bruton end of the party. And a lot of people want, expected me to stand because I had always expressed an interest, interest in the leadership. And actually, this was a very, very um, pivotal moment for me because I actually, uh, the night after uh, John Bruton uh, was ousted, I went to Michael Noonan at his request and he said, look, of course, you'll be on the front bench and all this kind of thing. And I said, Michael, I'm actually going to quit politics I'll never get a better opportunity. It's actually very hard to get out of politics when you're operating at a senior level. Your constituents, your party organization is depending on you. This is the perfect opportunity. I won't be a thorn in your side. And at that time, the election was expected to be in June 01. Bertie let it run on to June 02. But that was the moment I actually quit politics. And uh, mentally, I actually uh, I resigned off the front bench and I, I didn't do any substantive work after that. I was actually working on my business for that last year, opening six more new shops and that kind of thing, and really trying to build it up. So, so that, that, that actual, and I say it was quite awkward because back in November, before January, I'd actually stood at the convention and remarkably I had said, you know, that I'd given serious consideration to not standing but I felt in the interest of the party, that I, which is not the thing that you need to say to people yeah. if you're trying to inspire them to campaign for you. But it was actually how I felt. And so it was a building up from 97 on. I, fe- I felt, look, what more can I do? I've topped the poll. I've done, you know, three years of a ministry. I've delivered quite a bit for Wexford. I, I really, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to uh, die wondering here. You know, I've done all I can. I've given it my all. And I saw people kind of hanging on for the sun and hanging on because there's nothing else they do. And they're only a, a fraction of the, the zeitgeist that they might have been in politics. And I was only really determined to be in politics for as long as I felt I could make a difference. And if my, if my heart and soul and passion wasn't 100% in it, I thought it was more honest to quit. And uh, I felt I had a great opportunity. And as it happened then, the business 
uh, skyrocketed up to 190 million turnover, 63 shops, 420 staff before I failed to sell it uh, and and uh, ended up with a personal guarantee. Like yes. those 20 years, did, did you love the time there do, in the politics? Did you enjoy it? Oh, absolutely. Oh, no, no. Well, well sorry. It was it was more than enjoyment. It was it was it was absolutely you know, I put it before my family. I put it before everything. The nature of politics uh, is such that the level of commitment you require to hold your seat and the vulnerability of the insecurity of your job uh, up for election, uh, clean slate every time. Uh, I was a voracious, a voracious constituency worker. I was absolutely a workaholic. When I wasn't working, I was thinking about work and I was totally driven and committed to it and and just worked out great like politics was very good to me i've nothing only good things to say about politics and i i I, of course i enjoyed it and so on there were lots of ups and downs and stresses and strains but it was very rewarding career yes absolutely did did it change over those 20 years like how people you know like say the way the media dealt with politicians yeah Yeah, from from the late 90s on when the tribunals came in, the McCracken Tribunal and others and Hohe's finances and different things happened, the esteem within, uh, like I remember David Andrews, uh, former foreign affairs minister, saying that politicians were regarded as kind of, in yesteryears, kind of patrician, public service, noble profession. By the time I left it, politicians were one of the lowest forms of animal life. And, you know, um, Basically, there was a, a sea change in terms of public cynicism um, and negativity towards politics and politicians. There was no the, the start of the emergence, which has accelerated since of floating voters. Uh, the allegiance to parties was a lot stronger. You know, people like if you called to uh, a Fianna Fáil house when you were canvassing, when I started out, they actually would be insulted. Whereas, you know, I developed a technique where I didn't like to pass the door. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now there's just no bitterness in politics. You know what I mean? In terms of that civil war, uh, tribal difference. So uh, there was profound change, profound change. And you know that time, say around 2000, 2001, you know, say with New Labour in England with, with the handlers and you had Alistair Campbell yes. and in Ireland, you know, what was it? Was politics also changing like the you know, with, with handlers and how parties were being run or, yeah, or not. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, well, put it like this. If you go back to the early 80s, like one of Gareth's first things was, and he was derided for, was the national handlers. Uh, Bill O'Hurley, uh, Peter Prendergast, uh, and he was, he was very much uh, accused of Frank Flannery, uh, Ted Nealon and people like that. So communications and spin, uh, which is kind of ironic because now that's that's the area I'm doing media training <laughs> and so on. But but certainly I would have said that the kind of dark arts of spin became as the media became more fragmented and more sophisticated and more twenty four seven and more spont and more instantaneous. This is before the digital age. Uh, yes, there, 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 there's been a. Uh, a parallel growth in in all the spins, uh, and and today it's a multiple exponential multiple of what it was then even. Um, but yes, yes, there, there a number of changes, and of course 
society changed in terms of uh, the dominance of the Catholic Church changed, the relationship between politics and business changed, the Beef Tribunal and all of that led to fundamental change in terms of regulation of business and, you know, kind of the funding of political parties by the state rather than private individuals and all of that was a kind of odyssey of incremental change. There wasn't one, you know, kind of cathartic moment. Mm. But uh, so that, that, that was the end of my political career. And the third uh, moment of clarity then, um, I kind of I have, have two kind of pivot moments. So here I was building up my business, had, had really a fantastic 05, 06, 07. And then suddenly the recession started to hit and, and out of a clear blue sky, uh, and I mean out of the blue, uh, I got a call to meet a guy called Frank Cronin and Garish Hart of News Talk uh, in the Schoolhouse Hotel, I think Morehampton Road, they're just off the canal, out of the blue. Uh, and I remember it was April 09. And I hadn't any real broadcasting background or experience like politics. And basically, I had filled in for George Hook uh, on holidays for a week uh, and but because I was always promoting and a pundit bookmaking odds and Celtic bookmakers this and Celtic bookmakers that uh, I, I, I uh, they said how would you like to uproot yourself from Enniscorthy where I was living our headquarters of our business which was now very substantial at that stage um, but blue smoke was coming out of it there was a 40% reduction in disposable income and, and, and people had to buy clothes and had to get food. They didn't have to have a bet. And the internet was starting to displace high street betting. And I was predominantly in high street betting, although we did have a, a tele-betting phone centre, uh, call centre. Um, and basically, uh, uh, the situation was, uh, I said to the lads, I said, uh, they said to me, would you please um, consider joining Clare Byrne to present News Talk Breakfast. And, and I said, what time would I have to be in it? Oh, about half four in the morning. But I said, I'm not going to go up and down the N11. I said, that means I'll have to uproot myself from my wife completely, from my head office, from my business, from my family. Some of the kids were still being educated locally. But others were in boarding school and so on. And I said to myself, you know what? I might not get this opportunity again. And I said to Deirdre, the business is really, uh, you know, imperiled. Um, and this, this could be a personal get-out-of-jail card. I was in my early 50s, and I said, you know what? It may be a disaster, but I'll give it a go for a month or two or three. And then I, I it struggled in the beginning, and, and she was BBC trained, and I was like a bullock in a trailer. And I had no proper training when the red light goes on, start talking, when it goes off, stop talking. And essentially, um, uh, the, the situation was that it became a success and really a huge success uh, when Chris Donahue and I started it uh, because it was kind of black hat, old guy, Victor Meldrew, look, he'd say to me, sure, you can't dress yourself in the morning. I have to dress you. And I'd say to him, when is your internship up? You know, it was absolute slagging match. And we sort of choreographed disagreement on, you know, everything. And he was a snowflake and I was an old, you know, folky. And, and it was all grand. And, and it worked well. And he was very hardworking and very bright. And uh, we built it up because right throughout 
you know, News Talk had been established maybe seven, eight years. And um, David McWilliams, Eamon Dumphy, Claire Byrne, everybody had tried this programme and they couldn't get beyond 57,000. And with a good new production team, we built it up to 178,000, which was a record before or since it became a three hour show. And, and therefore that, now there was one, the second moment was the hiatus in that. When I had come through the corporate insolvency, fine. Uh, you know, over 30 of the 60 shops were sold and traded on and others were handed back to the landlords. All the staff issues were settled and all the business and went from receivership into liquidation and all that. But then I ran into difficulty with the personal guarantee for about three million with, with the bank. And basically, uh, I went to Bernard Summers and I negotiated in good faith. And they wanted me to work for the next 10 years to repay them. And I said, you know, if I wanted a job with the bank, I would have applied for it. Uh, I offered to give them 10% of my income uh, up to the point my mother died. And when my mother died, we'd sell the farm. And as long as we could keep the houses. And they said, if we got 99 cents in the euro, we wouldn't take it. This wasn't about money. And so basically then I researched it and I realized that the only solution, because the Irish personal insolvency law dated back to the 1860s and it meant a 12-year disqualification. So I saw in the UK that, and I had three shops in the UK, in Carmarthen, in Swansea, in Bristol, uh, and, and in Newport, four shops. And I had my head office there. My son had gone to university in Swansea. I said, you know what, I'm going to move over to Swansea, create my Comey. And I left in April 2012 on the boat. And I, you know, Dennis O'Brien said, you know, and I said, look, it's none to do with you. I just have to sort this out, crystallize it and get a fresh start with my life. And that's exactly what happened. And I campaigned ever since to get the UK law copy and post uh, pasted into Irish law. And now you hear adverts. If you have a financial problem, ring the insolvency service and uh, make a fresh start. All that culturally changed because I, you know, really said the problem here is not Ivan. The problem here is the law. And we need to, and, you know, as we go into COVID now, and there will be business failures arising out of that uh, through no fault of anybody. And I see that happening in 2023 quite severely um, for SMEs and so on. Those same laws will be invaluable to giving people an opportunity to restart again. Um, so do, do, those are my three moments, February 79, January 2001, and I suppose April 09. And they were either the kind of bookend or the door opening of my sort of careers from farming to politics to business uh, and to media. And uh, then in uh, January 2020, when I got all my, uh, I sued the bank then, uh, I got my family home and 35 acres back. And basically, uh, my wife, Deirdre, said to me, because we were renting in Dunleary at this stage, I was doing the Hard Shoulder and the Virgin Tonight Show, Virgin Media Tonight television show. I said, I'm finding it very difficult to sustain this. I'd taken on a three-year deal. And that was up in July in the summer of 2020. I said to Deirdre, and she wanted to retire. She says, no point in having a lovely home and nobody living in it. And I decided to uproot myself right in the middle of COVID, um, not knowing, uh, A, how uh, difficult retirement would be. And secondly, how uh, doubly difficult lockdown, 
plus retirement is. Uh, and uh, so I couldn't really pick the worst time to kind of reinvent myself, but I have now uh, developed mediamasterclass.ie. I've teamed up with iQuest. I wrote a syllabus of 18,000 words. We've done four courses and we have uh, arrangements for three more and group bookings of five. So it, it's a startup and it's, it's, it's going well. I believe it's unique because it takes, Fergal, all my experience of answering questions as a politician, in business, promoting your business without having a marketing budget through personality and sort of cheeky chappy stuff and celebrity stuff and all that kind of thing and punditry. And then actually 12 years working in the media, seeing how pro programs are made, seeing how they tick and, and sort of trying to see what sort of content they engage with um, and so on. So, so basically I've, I've had a charmed existence uh, I, I never really had to apply for a job in my life. I just drifted from one thing into the next thing. But, you know, like the, the duck going along the water underneath, I was paddling furiously at all stages. Now, the one omission that I have in fairness, and I, but this is a postscript, um, I got married on the 21st of December 1985. And that would be an obvious date to include. But having chased my wife to go out with me and date with me uh, up to the point I was elected, miraculously, when I became a TD, the first time I met her in Courtown on a Sunday night in June 1981, we started going out. And everything I've done has been a team effort and a partnership between Deirdre and myself. So there's no one date with Deirdre, whether it was July 81, whether it was December 85. So I was thinking of all those things and we'll, we'll be married 36 years, uh, you know, uh, this year. And, and, and so therefore, because they weren't moments of clarity, <laughs> but it would be wrong to conclude without saying there wasn't a constant factor that every up, every down, every knockout blow, every get up again, she would have endured and being involved in every bit of that and did the primary parenting as well, which allowed me the freedom to do all this other stuff. Uh, so, so basically, I've, I've been very, very lucky, 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 lucky to be in the right place. But, you know, as, as, as Gary Perry used to say, the more I practice my putting, the luckier I get with it. You know, uh, there was a fair bit of uh, resilience and a fair bit of... Uh, you know, I say the three, the three P's when I'm doing my uh, events speaking in that, I say there's three P's uh, uh, to follow in your life. Uh, and it's 90% it's, uh, perspiration, 10%, uh, sorry, 8% perseverance and 2% plagiarism. Every good idea I affected off somebody else. So uh, basically... Uh, uh, that, that, that has been my formula. I thought you were going to put in one there and the one I would put in is positivity because that's what I always think of you. You're a very yeah. positive, open person. Well, no, I can be a very harsh critic of myself and other people and maybe the, the side that I show to the world is energetic, passionate and positive and committed and so on because, you know, I believe, I, you know, one of the things I say about having content the media can engage with you cannot kind of pitch yourself, whether you're a politician, whether you're working for a charity, whether you're a CEO of a business trying to grow it, whether you're working for the HSE or Garda superintendent. Uh, basically, you, you cannot say Daz is kind of white 
you got to say it's stunningly white. You know what I mean? <laughs> In other words, that that if you don't believe it, and if you don't know what your USP is, uh, how do you expect to distill it, bottle it, and sell it to anybody else, or get anyone else to sell it for you? So I'm a great believer. You know, one of the things that you know, I do a lot of on-air techniques, and I do a lot of crisis uh, stuff and how to get yourself on air and build relationships. But the core, you know, you just can't ring up a radio or TV station and say, I want to be on air. You've got to have something about you, your backstory, your narrative, your point of view. That's, you know, what sells in this country is not the same. What sells is difference. And what I try and inculcate into the attendees at the masterclass is you need to go away and have a deep dive into, you know, so Michael O'Leary and Ryanair's point of difference was we screw travel agents, we screw baggage handlers, we screw uh, airports, we screw everybody. And we're in constant battle because we give better value at the discount, uh, 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 you know, pile them high, sell them cheap uh, philosophy. And therefore they have the core USP and the communications becomes just a case of executing it. If you actually are six of one and half dozen of the other, and that you're not really that different. If you're selling insurance or if you're a pharmacist or whatever you might be. Uh, and therefore, I tell, I'm not going to tell you your content. You've got to come up with razor sharp content and so on. So, like, I honestly believe that no matter what walk of life you're in, you know, you've got to be able to, to, to identify that. It's got to be authentic. And then I'll make you into a superstar. Thank you very much, Ivan, for a great interview. I couldn't have picked a more inspirational person for my last episode of season two. If I take one thing from your career, it is to keep going and never give up. I will return in the new year with season three and you now have all the episodes from season one and two available on all podcast platforms. I would ask you to subscribe or follow this podcast and you'll be the first to get new episodes direct to your phone. Take care and I look forward to sharing great new guests in 2022. You're listening to the Moments of Clarity podcast by Six Seconds Europe.